Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. The Indian Residential School Survivors Society. We assist First Nations peoples in British Columbia to recognize and be holistically empowered from the primary and generational effects of the residential schools. For more information, please visit irsss.ca. So the ocean, or the water body, if you will, uh, is a circulatory system that connects us all and that makes the life that we depend on possible. It gives us 60% of the oxygen that we breathe on Earth. Rain patterns so that farmers can grow foods for us. If you think about it, no ocean, no life. Our planet becomes this lifeless brown rock like so many others in space. We'll be riding inside in the sky so alive on Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with singer Majid al and producer Jordan Allman from the Canadian R&B duo Majid Jordan. The band's song, Waves of Blue, is the first single from their new album, Wildest Dreams. Majid Jordan got their start when they guest appeared on Drake's 2013 smash hit, Hold On, We're Going Home. Also joining us is aquanaut and ocean conservationist Fabien Cousteau. Fabien is the first grandson of famed explorer Jacques Cousteau and is currently spearheading the construction of Proteus, the largest underwater research station ever conceived. Research gathered from Proteus will give scientists the chance to make unprecedented gains in medicine, genetics, sustainability, and food production. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Waves of Blue, How an Underwater Space Station Can Improve Life on Earth. Hello, Magic Jordan and Fabienne. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So happy to be here with you guys. Cheers. Guys, I, I want to talk about that video. Now, for those listening who have not seen the video i just want to paint a little bit of a picture majid you're leaning up against a piano singing on top of a cgi ocean dressed in a yellow knit tank top and gray wool slacks it's about the smoothest (laughs) thing i've ever seen in my life (laughs) yeah i mean we just wanted to we wanted something that looked good that we could also shoot remotely that was the first video we shot remotely during the pandemic so we had the director was in la um the cgi team were were in paris and then we had a camera operator and and director photography in toronto and we just kind of shot that on a blue screen oh cool Visually, it's so beautiful and uh, also the smoothest sounding tune I've heard in a long time. Um, I've read a little bit about what the lyrics are describing, but the, so the lyrics to the chorus are, I'll be holding you tight when the night is through. We'll be riding the tide in the sky so alive on waves of blue. So what is it that you're describing in those words? Yeah, basically, this song was based on my experience as someone young when I was in Bahrain growing up in a traditional environment, not having been with anybody or really dating any girls. And it was me standing at the edge of the water, just imagining what it would be like to fall in love. And so that fantastic image of going into the sky, riding the tide in the sky. In Bahrain, there are a lot of these like fishermen boats and they hold just two people on them. Mm. 
and Jordan and I were talking and basically we we imagine one of them just going into the sky into the clouds and kind of the the, the boat just taking off from the water going into the sky like that what's the in, the main marine industry in Bahrain uh, there's a lot of fishing a lot of fishing they do pearl diving there's also manatee there seagrass there Bahrain in Arabic actually means two seas so there are freshwater springs in the bedrock uh, that mix into the salt water, and it, because it's in the in the Gulf, it's shallower, saltier water. And uh, I, I used to spend a lot of time in the sea. I used to swim. I did drift diving. They have like uh, coral. Uh, they basically sunk an airplane in the '80s or something, and now coral have 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 moved in and grown on top of it. So it, it's it's an amazing place, you know. And I I I just hope that they they conserve it moving forward because just the way the world's moving, it's 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 tough, you know. There's a there's been a lot of changes to the environment there with land reclamation and so on. In Bahrain. In Bahrain, yeah. So that 747 you described, I saw something about. That's like an underwater divers theme park, right? Yeah, it's it's just like this crazy project that they had, and they they had a plane that was going out of commission, and they just sunk it under there. But basically, waves of blue. That whole song came from being and living in Bahrain. I spend a lot of time alone by the water imagining what life would be like because I, I wanted to discover more of the world and I knew Bahrain was small I'd spent my whole life there I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I came to Toronto and mm -hmm. met Jordan and how old were you when you came to Toronto I was uh, 17 18 okay. 18 years old yeah. and have you guys ever have you ever gone to the Middle East to perform mm -hmm. yeah we we did a show in Bahrain we did a show in in Dubai it was like the most incredible experience for me coming from Toronto that isn't like a, a, a tropical island in the middle of the Middle East, so. Um, kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, definitely the opposite, And but I mean, there's so much love and, and the hospitality there, it felt like I was, I was in Toronto. Because uh, I know Drake is a big part of your story and how, how you guys came up, and you're on his label. Does he ever work with you guys in like an A&R capacity as you're working on this new album? Yeah, d definitely. Like working with Drake has has been such a great experience. We've we've been working with him for almost ten years now, mm -hmm. and his capacity for music and knowing when to be patient and and when to take action, I think, is really vital in in his musical career. Yeah, and something something that he taught us early is like concepts are important, you know. So for this song, like Waves of Blue, when you say that, you get such an image in your mind, and we think imagination is so important. Mm. And um, we just wanted to take that to the next level on this project, on our next album, where it's like we have these lines that are very visual, like riding the tide in the sky. Um, I want to touch your light. What does that mean when you hear something like that? Is it like a lightness? Is it like a ray? Is it like a force, an energy? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, just, just leaning into lyrical content much more than we have in previous projects. What you were just describing with the lyrics, too, it, it's the... Um I feel like a lot of that is embedded in the visual with that sort of, I don't know, that first, how do you describe that first shot that has all the different image boxes? Yeah, so this album, basically, every song is, we want it to be a room. And okay. we, we look at your mind kind of as something that puts things into different boxes and into different rooms. So one thought could put you into like a forest. One thought could be uh, the ocean. One thought could be a desert. One thought could be, I don't know, somewhere in a city. And it's basically, if you look at something from very, very close up in a micro way, you may think that that's your reality. 
And that may be true because your perspective is so limited. But once you pull back and you see the greater scale of everything, you see how many realities are coexisting and how, many, how, how deeply those realities can affect you and how deep they run when you are boxed into one of them. Right on. I've never been to the Middle East, and I really want to go. And um, well, I'm taking you all, Fa- <laughs> Fabian, Matt. I want to take enough. you all there. Like, I just want to take everybody to that side of the world because they need to meet people such as yourselves who are mm-hmm. just doing what they love and 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 really dedicating themselves to something in their life. I think that's like the most inspiring thing. From, from what I've seen, it just looks like such a beautiful part of the world. And so, from Jordan's point of view, as a Canadian, what was that like? Did you did you go in the Persian Gulf? Did you swim when you were there? No, we didn't. We it was between uh, our North American tour and our our European leg of the tour, and we it was within that week we got an opportunity to play a show in Bahrain for about three thousand people, and right right after that we were going to Manchester, okay. so it was very in and out, very quick. But we we I mean I got to spend about you know seventy two hours in in Bahrain, and it was incredible, and I think. That's just the beginning of that chapter of really bridging uh, that gap of of not only music but people from the Middle East to Canada, and I, I think there's going to be many more opportunities, and and, and you guys are, are definitely going to join us for okay. sure. Yeah. 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 My uncle, my uncle would love to meet you, Fabian. He's actually like one of the lead conservationists on the island, and so you know he was he's written books on animals on land and in the sea. Like if I show him a bird, you know, he's like, yeah, this migrated from here to here and because it's warm. And if I show him like anything in the sea, he'll let me know like the type of plant life, the aquatic like uh, uh, animals that come through that stay there. There's dolphins and it's it, like uh, to have you come over to Bahrain would be <laughs> so insane. So crazy. Uh, Bahrain uh, is just located in such a beautiful spot. And the fact that the Persian Gulf itself has some life and some vibrancy and so unknown, especially for the Western cultures or, or mm-hmm. what we call Western cultures, so Europe and, and mostly North America. You know, your story of, the, of being with the, the fishermen and just enjoying uh, going out into the water as a free diver and as a, as a diver, being able to see what's down there and the coral growing on some of the, uh, the plane, for example, that was used as an artificial reef and all that. It just goes to show that that there's a lot of life that's there. And if you give it uh, a chance, it will breed rebirth. Uh, and therefore, it becomes this fireworks display of life. And uh, I could see why you were influenced <laughs> by by the ocean with uh, with the latest song. It's just it's a romance. You know, mm. it, it becomes this uh, this relationship that becomes lifelong. Yeah. And what's so cool about all of us speaking together is that in many ways, uh, Fabienne, what you're doing with Proteus is building on the legacy of your grandfather's work with the conch shelf experiment, which was in the Red Sea, right? Yeah, so uh, conch shelf two. No, there were three uh, underwater habitats that my grandfather and his team experimented with over the, the years in the early 1960s. You know, back in the infancy, as a matter of fact, conch shelf one is arguably the first underwater habitat mm. uh, in existence. And uh, it was all about man's relationship to the sea if we can live underwater for extended periods of time, what does that do to us physiologically, uh, if anything? And what can we learn from the sea by being on that final frontier? The Conch Shelf 2, which was maybe the most famous underwater habitat because of its 
being the the protagonist in the World Without Sun, mm. which was an Oscar award winning movie that my grandfather had had done uh, back in those days, really highlighted the amazing mysteries of the undersea world and our being aliens in that world, are really going there for the first time, a little bit like landing on the moon or in the future, maybe colonizing Mars, and the value of an underwater habitat. Proteus builds a bit on the lineage of past pioneers, building uh, underwater structures to explore the undersea world as a fish, so to speak, to be able to be uh, saturated, if you will, so that we could have that extended period of time to have that experience to really dance with nature and be able to to come back and hopefully inspire others through the knowledge that we've gained from that experience. Proteus is really going to be the International Space Station of the Ocean. Wow. wow. And can you tell us about it, um, what it looks like inside and out? I mean, I've, I've seen the mock-ups of it. It's so stunning. But I want to know, because I'm sure at this point you have a very three-dimensional understanding of an immersive one of what it's going to be like. Could you describe it for us? Sure, sure. I'm still, thankfully, a little too young to have experienced the first habitats, con shelf and all Mm -hmm. that. But I did get a chance to go to the last remaining undersea marine laboratory called Aquarius, where I took a team for 31 days. So it gave me an appreciation of the, the possibilities and also the limitations of a structure that was built in the 1980s. And so with that in mind, designing a state-of-the-art undersea marine habitat became um, uh, not only uh, an homage to all the exploits of the past, but also trying to tackle all the frustrations and limitations that they had to confront so that we could look forward. And with that in mind, building something 10 times the size of any previous habitat was paramount so that we could house it with multiple state-of-the-art marine laboratories, groups of researchers that are not two, four, or six people big, but twice that much, 12 or more, and not for days or maybe weeks, but weeks, months, and maybe longer, so that we can really push the envelope and we can really leverage that coefficiency of time of being at the bottom of the sea. Now, yes, we can send ROVs and AUVs and uh, submersibles, divers from the surface and all that, and it's not meant to replace any of that. As a matter of fact, if anything, Proteus is the missing tool in the toolbox. But just like any tool, there was a very big void there since we don't have anything comparable except in space. Mm. And if we look at the value of what ocean brings us, and of course, for all the wonders that it brings, those intangibles, the things that make us dream, both the megafauna, like large animals, like the the blue whale, to the microcosmic, you know, the phytoplankton and the mantis shrimp and octopus battles. All those things are things that we can bring to the general public, both on a a platform of knowledge so that we can look at, for example, uh, microbiology and chemistry so we can battle pandemics like what we're doing right now with COVID in ways that are much more in pace with the pace of life today. But also, we can bring stories. We can bring the highlights, the highlight reel, if you will, of the connection of human beings in ocean, that human-ocean connection, for those who may never get a chance to swim in the ocean. So when you just mentioned COVID, 
how does the pharmacological connection work? Like marine research that you can conduct, how are you able to turn that into medicine? Well, the simplest example is something that we all know very much is the chemical compositions that we are able to extract around the world on land, right? Uh, the uh, Amazon rainforest is a, is a great example, for, for example. There are tens, if not hundreds of millions of compounds that are extracted from various flora and fauna that are then brought to labs as a DNA encyclopedia, if you will. And so with that, certain chemical compositions are used for certain things. If you look at the, the components of vaccines, you'll see that there are a lot of components that are derived from natural resources. And a lot of times people spend months, if not years, in laboratories playing with those chemical compositions to see how they can be used for solution building, whether it's a viral pandemic or vitamins or, or some other aspect. Those chemical compositions are invaluable for us to create solutions to problems that, that arise, especially in the case of things like a pandemic. In the ocean, it's vastly untapped. There may be 30 or 40,000 chemical compositions that have been deciphered from things like sponges and small animals and things like that. I can give you a few that have actually made it to market. Uh, for example, uh, deep water sponge chemical composition was used in a, a targeted chemotherapy for leukemia. Another chemical composition from a, the venom of a cone snail, cone snail being the most venomous organism on the planet, uh, is now being used to combat chronic pain, ex extreme chronic pain. Really? It's thousand times more powerful than morphine without the side effects. But you have to administer it in a hospital. You know, and, and there are other examples like this, but we're just scratching the surface because we've explored less than 5% of our ocean world to date. So imagine that Pandora's box of solutions that are awaiting us out there. That is stunning. So the, the cone snails that we said? Yep. Does it act like an, an opiate? It's just not addictive? Correct. Correct. So it's it's not addictive at all. Uh, and and the way they uh, the way they describe it to me, I'm I'm certainly no chemical biologist, uh, is that the venom itself is uh, deciphered, decortiqué uh, in French, uh, broken up into pieces, and then the select uh, strands mm -hmm. are then used for the treatment, uh, so that it targets just the pain and doesn't become venomous or toxic. Wow. And it doesn't also uh, trigger um, a, a, a dependence on that okay. particular uh, drug. Um, now that said, if you're in acute pain, uh, it's usually something that you're going to need for an extended period of time, depending on your situation, uh, whether it's rehab or some other or some other purpose. That's bananas. I was just imagining yeah. some some guy being like, "Yo, man, I can't kick this." Cone shell. Going to his plug and the guy being like, that's going to be hard to get, man. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, we've only discovered 5% of the ocean. I know. The reason why I'm curious is because my four-year-old daughter watches Aquanauts and she started talking to me the other yeah. day about cone snails. I'm like, what the hell are they peddling to this kid? <laughs> it's amazing, though, what you can find in the ocean. Like, My mm -hmm. question is, once you build this structure underwater you're all experienced biologists scientists you, you you have knowledge of the sea do you see it going to someone like me or jordan where we we're not so experienced but capable of also inhabiting spaces such as those sure so so we're actually experimenting with the idea of citizen aquanauts uh being able to 
go down and explore. Now, the difference between going into space and going into ocean, as you know, you, you, you've been diving before, uh, is the equipment uh, and the parameters. Uh, going into space, you're still dealing, well, you're dealing with lack of air. So you're obviously trained to be able to, to deal with that. In ocean, you're dealing with limits of air as well as uh, various pressures. So as some of you know, those who are divers, the uh, pressure uh, gets greater as you go deeper. Uh, every 10 meters is an extra atmosphere. Uh, in, in English uh, language, is 14.7 PSI, but uh, one, one ATM of atmosphere additional for every 10 meters or 33 feet you go down. And so those parameters are certainly different. Um, by and large, uh, whether you go into space or into the ocean, you're going into a foreign environment. So there is training involved, but for a citizen aquanaut, uh, many of us are citizen aquanauts. Uh, the first time you go down, you basically have to train, uh, like astronauts do, for, uh, for ocean saturation and living in a habitat. Because at the end of the day, you can't go to the surface. It's a, it's a commitment for a few days or a few weeks or however long you're staying down there. And so you need to mitigate any considerations. I'll, I'll leave it that rather than, than make it doom and gloom. But if you have a, a, an issue, uh, you, you, you do have to deal with it down below. But yes, uh, by, overwhelmingly, it, it can be very safe. It can be open to the vast majority of the general public as long as you're healthy enough and you're willing to. Um, why not? Why not? I think that would mm -hmm. be great. Can we, can we bring speakers? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so you know what? Something that may interest you guys mm -hmm. is the acoustics uh, underwater. So, you know, water is a thousand times denser than air, so sound travels much faster. It's also much more difficult for us human beings to decipher what direction the sound is coming from because we're not built that way. We're built for air. We're not built for ocean. So the, the differential between the way the sound hits one ear versus the other makes it really difficult for us to know where it comes from. But also playing into that, is the acoustic anomalies underwater. So whether it's, uh, you know, looking and, and, and trying to decipher uh, whale language or uh, illegal uh, underwater mining, there are a lot of things that we are, we will be studying, I'm sorry, I'd say we are studying, but we will be studying through Proteus that have play in a, a bunch of different types of industries. For me personally, I'm very sensitive to sound. Uh, I, I love good music, of course, but with regard to uh, a tin can underwater, I, I hate to make it sound that way, but with a, a structure underwater that's made of metal and with a, a air-water interface that, of course, changes acoustics and sound waves, uh, there's a lot to play with there. For a resident of an underwater habitat, you want to be able to insulate yourself as much as possible from all the routine noises of you know, um, motors and uh, electronics and things like that, and all the the terrible reverberations that you have, especially if you're trying to record underwater. So there's there's a lot to play with for sure. Uh, and the more you think about it, the more it becomes obvious why cetaceans, meaning uh, whales and, and, and uh, dolphins, uh, use acoustics to guide themselves in the mm -hmm. water. Well, it's, it's also obvious how much we don't know about, about the ocean. If you have uh, Proteus, which is on the, the bottom of the ocean, is there already external sound that you're hearing when you're within that capsule? Oh, yes. So there, there's a lot of sound. It, it becomes its own speaker, in essence, or mm. amplifier, yeah. uh, passive amplifier. 
uh, you, between the pressure differential, right? So you, you pop into Proteus from underneath, uh, or into Aquarius or whatever habitat you are, from underneath, right, through the wet porch. You go from water into air. Your ears are a little stuffy, your, your nose is a little stuffy, you feel a little, uh, like your voice is a little bit higher because you're breathing three atmospheres of pressure in that case. Wow. Uh, and you also recognize that when sound travels from the surface, for example, let's say there's a motorboat coming over your mm-hmm. head, it goes through this water interface, very dense, and it amplifies that pressure. And then it hits the, the steel from the hull and then goes into an air interface. It becomes very, very noisy. Wow. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's very disturbing. Some people were easier to uh, adapt to it. Uh, and then you could hear the tiniest of animals, of critters, on the actual uh, hull, mm. like the man- like wow. like the little snapping yeah. shrimp, mm. all day and all night. And the, shrimp, the snapping shrimp are just a natural part of the environment. Yeah. And they're feeding all the time, but you can hear the pop of their, of their little... Uh, uh, claws all day, all night, just poop, pop, pop, wow. pop, 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 pop. So at first it's novel. After a few days, you start saying, "Okay, yeah. I'm, I, this is a lot of noise." Yeah. <laughs> mm, <laughs> well, e- even e- even just how how do you as a human being go into this thing? Like, how do you really enter this this Proteus? <laughs> you mean physically or or or? <laughs> yeah, like f- physically. Just how, how does that pressure change happen? It, 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 it's like sci-fi to I'm, me. Like I'm I'm curious. Like if your voice goes higher by about three it, times, you're, like you're, I want to record a song. You're, you like know that. what? Your your voice does go. It would be awesome for you guys to record a song in Proteus. I would. I think that would be absolutely. I would love to have love you to. over. Oh, yeah. that'd be insane. Because yeah. I, I mean, just hearing you, Fabian, talk about this is some of the most inspiring things I've ever heard in my life. I I'm curious. Uh, what your instruments would sound like, yeah. what your voices would sound like, you know, and, and how we can make the inside of a habitat a bit more like a recording studio, right? So there's a, a fairly decent insulation mm. uh, that has a whole bunch of other considerations. But but yeah, that would yeah. be awesome for sure. Uh, how do you get into Proteus? Well, it's very simple. It's like, um, it's very simple. <laughs> In theory, it's very simple. Uh, it, it's like an upside down cup, right? You, you push the upside down cup in the water. So air is still in the cup. Mm-hmm. And essentially the easiest way to get into a habitat is by having a opening at the bottom of the habitat, which is called a moon pool typically. And you just go and swim up into the bubble. It's like an underwater cave, if you will. But uh, something that a lot of people forget especially brand new divers, is that despite the fact that you're taking off your your dive gear and everything else, you're still on a dive. Because regardless of whether you're breathing in your tank or you're breathing the air in in Proteus or in the habitat, it's still at the same pressure, Mm -hmm. right? So those divers who who are recreational divers, you know, 60 feet for 60 minutes was the old benchmark. You're still in that 60-minute threshold if you're at 60 feet or 20 meters. But... Essentially, that's how you get in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're committing to becoming a, an aquanaut, whether it's 60 minutes or 600 minutes or 6,000 minutes, it doesn't matter. Once you're saturated, you're saturated. Meaning, once your body is at equilibrium with the nitrogen, oxygen in the in the air that you're mm-hmm. breathing, you can stay down as long as you yeah. want. Fabian, have you ever had the bends? Uh, not that I know of, but there is a theory that every every person goes diving gets the bends on some level. Okay. <laughs> every dive. <And> it, <laughs> what what is the bends exactly? Uh, the bends is a a set of side effects or potential side effects from not decompressing or allowing for that nitrogen to come out of your body 
as you go back to the surface. So it's not so much a problem with recreational diving because it has a lot of built-in safety mechanisms within the process of training to dive. But essentially, uh, the gas in your body, in your blood, especially nitrogen, forms bubbles that will have consequences like blockages uh, in different parts of your body, whether it's in joints or on your skin or you know, potentially a stroke or a heart attack. The idea of avoiding the bends is to stop at certain thresholds to decompress, right? To allow air or gas to come out of your body. And that's why you're breathing in and out and you do your three-minute safety stop and all that stuff. Uh, the bends is when you don't do those things and you, let's say you, you skyrocket to the surface. And it's, uh, the bends is a set of issues that is a sickness, if you will, uh, where you get tingling in your uh, sensation in your skin. That's a minor issue of the bends. It means that you pushed yourself a little too far and you went up too fast. You can uh, get paralysis in your limbs. You can get joint pain uh, from those nitrogen bubbles being stuck in your joints. There's easy, fairly easy protocols to, to help alleviate all that. You go back down and do your decompression obligations. You can get on oxygen also, depending on if you're at the surface or near the surface. Uh, there are a lot of ways to flush that nitrogen out of your system. But in the most extreme cases... So in the case of being um, a saturation diver, so someone who's maximized de their decompression obligations, uh, going to the surface without decompressing would certainly sign you on to uh, uh, some very catastrophic consequences, yeah. uh, you know, paralysis, death, that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't want to scare people uh, who are listening. No, certainly not. It's, diving is extraordinarily safe if you follow the basic rules, <laughs> recreational diving. Thanks mostly to your grandfather's invention of the aqualung. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so the co-invention uh, between my grandfather and Émile Gagnon, who was an engineer at Air Liquide, which is a largest compressed gases manufacturer, back in 1943, they adapted what they called a, a regulator, which was originally used to burn different types of fuels on vehicles because during World War II, fuel was very uh, difficult to find. So whatever fuel they had, whether it was diesel or gas or propane or what have you, those vehicles would be able to adapt because of that regulator. Now that regulator was adapted then to become what we call SCUBA, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And that invention that, they in that those two invented is what we use today for diving. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's the same, same process, same, same general engineering, except that they're easier to breathe and smaller yeah. but mm -hmm. other than that it's the same same process um there's there's a couple of things that because i know that you've got a split there's a there's a couple things that i wanted to talk about one is i've heard you make mention of artificial coral tiles that's going to be involved with the construction of proteus so i want to know what those are and because you hear so much about the destruction of the planet's coral and how yeah. terrible that is for biodiversity and just and and so i want to know can we actually get away with that? Can we just make artificial coral and just say nothing, everything's fine? <laughs> I wish it were that simple. We would be we'd be fixing a lot of things we've already broken out there in the ocean. So Proteus, one of the big goals of Proteus, obviously, is to be uh, an inspirational platform, a, a great unifier for for ocean conservation and research, as well as just bringing people together with that human ocean connection. It would be 
short-sighted if we didn't look at the conservation aspects, and especially with regard to installing something that is a fairly significant size underwater in a marine protected area, if we didn't look at what our, our footprint is uh, and try and mitigate any and all aspects of that as much as possible. At the Ocean Learning Center, my nonprofit, we've been playing around and we've been using 3D printing technology to print from organic material, from what coral is made of, uh, coral reef systems, or more specifically, the stony structures of the coral reef systems. And combining that with scientific breakthroughs to accelerate evolutionary processes of the, the fleshy part, right? Mm -hmm. The zooxanthellae, the little polyps, mm -hmm. if you will, um, of coral, so that we can try and look at, at those solutions to adapt to the changing climate-related issues. Now, obviously, if a coral reef system has more than one issue, meaning overfishing, pollution, and climate change-related issues, it's much more complicated and difficult to do. But if we have a, a coral reef that's mainly assaulted by climate change-related issues, but is pristine otherwise, then we have the ability to plant those coral tiles with the new uh, coral species on there or evolved coral species to try and combat and adapt to the changing climate. That also includes pH levels. Mm -hmm. Now, with Proteus, we want to blend in with the ecosystem as much as possible. So we're going to try and also incorporate that in some of the superstructure. Okay. Wow. Well, that's really cool that, that you can do that. So we've only got a couple more minutes. Uh, guys, do you have any more questions for, for Fabian? Uh, I was just going to talk about coral. Like, I wonder if you could 3D print you know when corals, unfortunately, they die and they turn white and powdery? I wonder if you could use that as a 3D printing material. I don't know if it's because it's dead, it wouldn't work? or No, it's the, it's the ultimate in recycling, yeah. right? I mean, uh, essentially, that's calcium carbonate for, for the most part. Uh, and so I don't know if it's efficient, but you can certainly create powder, uh, calcium carbonate powder out of that. Put it in the mix of, uh, say, uh, a 3D printer. Mm -hmm and uh, reprint a new structure out of it or structures out of it. You know, our tiles are usually, you know, two by two, or you can make as large or as small as uh, pieces wow. you want. Obviously, the bigger, the, the more time and money it takes. But, but yes, uh, I, I, in theory, absolutely. And, and we had looked at that. Uh, it's just a matter of permitting. It's a matter of a lot of other things. Is it worth it? Are we taking something away from the environment? Yeah. Uh, all, all those things, but absolutely. Right now, where do you think is the most protected uh, marine environment in the world the water is pristine the animals are thriving the corals alive where would you say that is uh yeah that's a difficult one because i'd say the the main factor is the farther away from human beings the better mm. and that's really sad statement to make mm. uh but um you know the northwest hawaiian islands are certainly one of those places mm -hmm. uh there are others out there the Poor Knights National Marine Sanctuary in New Zealand uh, is actually not far away from the North Island. It's it's uh, easy boat ride, but it's been highly protected by the fishermen who were originally uh, the ones who didn't want an MPA. And they found that the spillover effect, meaning the, the, the populations of fish who were breeding in the marine protected area uh, the, that overcrowded and then had to go somewhere else, that gave them more fish and, and a higher catch than fishing in the marine protected area. So now they're the biggest protectors of it. They want to increase it. Mm. So, you know, that kind of awareness mm. along with 
having zones that are protected, I think is the, our best bet. Yeah. And if we have that cooperation between human beings and protected areas, then all of a sudden we can look at this as a natural resource bank account and we live off the interest rather than eating away the capital that it bears. Yeah. So you're, you're, you know, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, there are a few good examples out there, but we have fewer marine protected areas in the world uh, square kilometer wise than we have national parks in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it stands to reason that we should probably make a few more. I have a question for you guys though. What's that? Have you ever played underwater? No. Never. We we were actually <laughs> we, we were th we would love to. We were, we were thinking of shooting the Waves of Blue music video. The first idea that Maj actually had was to shoot it in a submarine, and so That's we awesome. um, you know we had the conversation, and then about a week in, it's it's a it's a lot to expect for a music video, <laughs> but we would absolutely love to. Absolutely. Well, let's see to. if we can make that yeah. happen yeah. for sure. In the meantime, I, I love your music. I love your songs. Very inspirational. You know, it's right from the heart. It's easy to just get hooked into. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. and and we'd yeah. we'd love to just maintain contact with both of you guys. You're, yeah. you're, it's, what what you're doing is so amazing, and, and we think like there's a real hunger for that information. Like mm -hmm. me as yeah. someone who grew up next to the sea and just being around water all the time, I just it's 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 really important, and I know how people's livelihoods come from the sea so if if you take that away you like take away people's reasons for living and being two billion people two billion people depend directly on uh on the ocean for their livelihood yeah. and then the rest of us uh, those who eat uh seafood and those who enjoy good weather and all that mm. so basically 7.8 yeah. billion people yeah. on this planet. Yeah. It, it boils down to one thing you know i mean it boils down to what my grandfather used to tell me when i was a kid which is people protect what they love they love what they understand they understand what they're taught so inspiration uh, and the knowledge that we're all in it together. We're all part of the problem. We're all part of the solution yeah. uh, at the end of yeah. the day. And, and yeah. what, what your grandfather said, I mean, is the greatest plug for outreach and conservation, you know, because it's so important that people have exposure in order to be invested in it. So thank you, because I know you're so busy. Thank you all so much. Good luck. Uh, I, I'll be listening and uh, we'll talk soon, maybe underwater. It was a pleasure. Thank you Fabian. so much. Thank Fabian. you so much. Pleasure to meet you. Ciao. Be sure to check out Majid Jordan's latest album, Wildest Dreams, and learn more about Fabian's conservation work at FabianCousteauOLC.org. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Ottavio Media and Bailey Constas, and pressed by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Chell Steven, Thing New York, and Hannah Nice for their help with today's show. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>